We all know that something is wrong with the world. Some days seem just short of paradise, while other days are filled with news of deadly plagues and deadly storms and personal tragedy. There's life springing forth all around us, and yet all of life seems to be haunted by the specter of death. If anything, over the last month, we have all become more aware of our own mortality and how fragile our life really is. And that's not altogether a bad thing. But there are some who have no hope of anything better. This is just the way the world is, they say. You're born, you live, you die, the end. Might as well enjoy it while you can. But most people don't believe that. Most people believe that there is something more, that death cannot be the end. They may not have a firm grasp of what that something more might be, but somehow they know that there must be more than just this life. If we will hear it, the Bible is very clear on what that something more is. In one sense, that something more is what the whole story of the Bible is about. From the beginning, when God created the world good and put the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden, and he blessed them, and he walked with them, and gave them the gift of life, and they spoiled it, they rebelled against him, they sinned, and they brought death into the world. And yet God says at the end that he is going to bring a new creation that's unstained by sin, untouched by death, where men and women can once again live and walk in the presence of God. And in the middle of that story, he tells us how we're going to get to the end, that the eternal Son of God came into the world, born as a man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sin in the place of sinners, rose from the dead on the third day, securing Not only forgiveness of sins, but eternal life in the presence of God for all who will turn from their sin and trust in Him. And in another sense, we can find this whole story packed in one dense paragraph in Romans chapter 8. I invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to Romans 8. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25. The Apostle Paul there writes these powerful words. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, But because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now Paul has just said, as we saw last week, that all those who belong to Christ, all those who have trusted Christ are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we are children of God. And as children of God, we are heirs of God. Everything belongs to us. Everything will be given to us. And yet, before we share in Christ's glory, we first must suffer with Him, and then we will be glorified with Him. Now, uh, in verse 18, he explains why it's worth it for us to endure that suffering on the way to glory. Look at what he says there. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, anytime we do something hard, we want to know that the end result is going to be worth it. So whether it's something like going to college for four years or beginning to save for retirement, or whether it's something like having surgery or or going through chemotherapy, we want to know that on the other side, we at least have a good chance of a good retirement or a good job or better health or uh, a life free of cancer or whatever it may be. We want to know that on the other side of that suffering, what we're going to get in return is going to be worth it. Now, we might not be so bold as to ask, you know, is it going to be worth suffering with Jesus? But Paul gives us the answer to the question that we might not be willing to ask. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the suffering that we endure as we follow and walk with Jesus in a fallen, broken, hostile world, those sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's very similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17 where he says, This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, if you're going through some sort of suffering that is really hard and truly weighty, it might seem sort of frivolous for Paul to say this light momentary affliction, but you've got to remember that Paul was a man who suffered more than most. In 2 Corinthians 11, he gives us a list of many of the things he suffered. He was beaten, he was in prison, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned and left for dead, he was persecuted, run out of town, one time had to escape through a window in the wall of a city because people were coming after him. Paul was a man who knew suffering, severe suffering, intense suffering. And yet even he said, the suffering we experience in this life, when you compare it to the glory that God has prepared for us, is really light and momentary. The trouble is, the suffering is present and the glory is future. 
We experience the suffering now. It's a real, tangible part of our lives. But the glory that God has promised, we can't see that yet. We haven't experienced that yet. God may have given us a a taste, but for the most part, that glory is something we have heard about, but not yet seen or experienced. So how can we, in the midst of our suffering, be encouraged and strengthened and filled with hope and perseverance with the knowledge of this future glory while our present is filled with hardship and pain and difficulty? Well, Paul gives us the answer. Notice that word, that phrase, I consider. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What this is, is this is gospel thinking. This is gospel math. This is a theological calculation. What Paul has done and what he wants us to do is he has thought, he has considered, he has weighed in his mind the suffering that he is experiencing and that he expects to continue experiencing in this life. And he has put that in one side of the scale. And then he has pondered and weighed and thought about the promises that God has made about our future glory. He's, after all, the one who wrote 1 Corinthians 15, full of promises of resurrection and immortality. He's uh, reminding us to weigh promises we find in Scripture like in Revelation 21 about a new heavens, a new earth, a new creation. In Revelation 22 about seeing the face of God. And he's saying, I've taken those kinds of promises that God has given us and I've put my suffering in one side of the scale and I've put the promises that our faithful God has given us about the glory to come and The promises of glory have not just tipped the scales, they have crashed the scales. The glory that God has promised us is so far beyond, so much greater, so much weightier than all we experience now that Paul is in essence saying, one day you're going to say with me that that suffering that was present, that was hard, that was heavy at the time, I now can say It was really light and momentary compared to this eternal weight of glory that God has given to me. Paul is encouraging us to make this same kind of calculation. He wants you to think not only about your suffering, which is hard not to think about, especially when you're in the midst of it, He's encouraging us not only to think about our suffering, but to think about these promises. To set our mind on the things that God has said that He is going to do for us. The things that He is going to give to us at the return of Christ. And He's saying, you do the math. You weigh it out in the scales. You reckon it up. Is it going to be worth it? I am convinced, Paul would say, that if you'll weigh these things out faithfully, you will agree with me that what God has promised for us in the future is so much greater than the suffering we experience in the present that the two are not even really worth comparing. 
And if we think that way, that will help us persevere. That will help us endure. That will help us finish our course with joy, as Paul did, looking forward to the reward. Now, what is it exactly that we are waiting for? What is this glory that God has promised us? Well, Paul begins to unfold that for us a little bit in uh, verses 19 to 23. He says in verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So he starts not with what we are waiting for, but he starts with the fact that even creation, the world, the cosmos, the creation itself is waiting eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What that means is that it's not evident to the world right now who the sons of God are, who the children of God are. You can't walk down the street and tell that person's a Christian, that person's not a Christian. Uh, it's, it's not evident by our physical appearance or anything like that who the sons of God are. We all look like everybody else. But there is going to be a day, the Bible says, when Jesus will return. And 1 John 3, 2 says, When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says that when Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And so the way Paul describes that here is the revealing of the sons of God. When Jesus comes back, we are going to be raised from the dead, our bodies transformed, so that it is going to be apparent to all creation who the children of God are. And Paul says that the whole creation is waiting and longing for that day. Now why does why does creation wait for that day? Why does creation long for that moment when Jesus returns and the sons of God are revealed. Well, he explains in verse 20 and 21. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, here he's going all the way back to Genesis 3. He's going all the way back to the fall when Adam sinned not only... Did Adam and Eve experience death and separation from the presence of God and exile from the Garden of Eden? But also the creation itself was put under a curse. Remember that God told Adam that the ground was going to be cursed because of him. And he said that the ground that was supposed to be fruitful and abundant and productive was now going to produce thorns and thistles, things that are worthless and painful. And so the way Paul sums that up here in verse 20 is that the creation was subjected to futility. It was no longer allowed to be as gloriously abundant and productive as God had designed it to be. And he goes on to say in verse 21, that uh, the end of verse 20 and then into verse 21, it was subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So 
Creation has been enslaved. It has been put in bondage to corruption, to decay. It is under this curse as a result of man's sin. And it is longing for the moment when it too will be set free and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, man and creation were both enslaved at the same time, at the fall. And man and creation will both fully be set free at the same time at the return of Christ. So just like the creation was subjected to the curse as a result of man's sin at the time of his fall, so the creation will be set free from that curse and corruption and bondage at the time when Christ returns and we experience the fullness of our salvation and redemption and freedom that Christ purchased for us on the cross. So the creation itself, Paul says, is longing for the day of Christ's return, longing to share in our freedom, in our release from bondage and slavery. And then he goes on to say in verse 22 and 23 that we and the creation are groaning as we long for this day. Verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now that's a vivid image, right? He's saying that creation is groaning. It is in pain as though we're experiencing the pains of of childbirth, right? that it is longing and it is groaning and it is suffering, waiting for something good to be brought forth out of this pain and suffering. And then he says, verse 23, and not only the creation, <clears throat> but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. So we too are experiencing this Longing, this groaning, there's this, <clears throat> this angst in us, right? That we know there's something in us that tells us the world is not supposed to be like this. That it's not supposed to be full of diseases and disasters and death. It's not supposed to be full of pain and sorrow and hardship. That this life is supposed to be good and beautiful and joyful and unstained, unmarred by all these terrible things. And so sometimes we don't even know how to put that feeling, that angst, that frustration into words. And sometimes even when we pray, we just say, God, do something. There's just a groan. God, do something. God, come. God, fix this. We groan inwardly. And the creation is groaning and suffering along with us. And what are we waiting for? He says it again in verse 23. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What does that mean? 
Well, we have already been adopted in some sense, right? Paul said this a few verses earlier, that we have received the spirit of adoption, that we are God's children. The spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. And we cry out by the spirit, Abba, Father. We've already been adopted into his family. But there's another sense in which even that adoption awaits its fullness. So many parts of our salvation we have in one sense already received, but in another sense not yet fully experienced. We've already been forgiven of our sin. We've already been set free from the power of sin, but we have not yet been set free from the presence of sin. That awaits the return of Christ when we will sin no more. We have already been given new life. Spiritually, we've already been raised from the dead, but physically, we have not yet experienced the resurrection. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell inside of us. We have real fellowship with God, and yet we do not yet experience that fellowship to the same degree that we will in the new heavens and the new earth when it says, He will be with us. He will dwell with us as our God, and we will be His people, and we will see His face. In the same sense here, we have already been adopted, but we are waiting for the fullness of that adoption, and Paul describes that fullness as the redemption of our bodies. It's not just our souls that have been redeemed. Our bodies have been redeemed, and this redemption of our bodies that we're waiting for is what will take place when we are raised bodily from the dead at the return of Christ, given a renewed, transformed, immortal, incorruptible body fit to dwell in a new creation in the presence of God forever. That's what we are longing for. And that belongs, that, those promises belong to every child of God. That is the hope that animates and drives and sustains every believer. Christ is the one who has secured that future for us. His death was the price of our redemption. He told his disciples in Matthew 20, 28, that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His death was the price paid for our redemption. And his resurrection secured our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.21 says, As by a man came death, that's talking about Adam and his sin that brought death into the world. As by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's talking about Jesus. By his resurrection has come our resurrection. And Paul goes on to say that that resurrection is going to happen at his coming. In verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. When Jesus returns. And that's the same thing Paul is talking about here as well. We are groaning, waiting, eagerly for the redemption of our bodies, for the day of resurrection, for the time when Christ returns. That is what all of our frustration and angst and longing is ultimately aimed at, whether we know how to articulate that or not. We want to experience 
the glory of resurrected life. We want to experience the fullness of our adoption. We want to experience the glory that we do not deserve, but that we were created to enjoy. We want to live in a world unstained by sin, set free from the curse, and able to flourish as God designed it to. When your suffering feels weighty, Test it against the weight of these promises. It cannot compete. This day is coming, Paul says, but it's not here yet. Notice verse 24 and 25. He says that all these things are things that we hope for. And we hope for them because we don't have them yet. We haven't seen them yet. Notice verse 24, he says, For in this hope we were saved. That means when you were saved, when you uh, turned from sin and you trusted Christ, you knew, in some sense, you knew that the salvation that Christ had purchased for you was not all about this life right now. As we said earlier, yes, you experience forgiveness of sins now. Yes, you receive the Holy Spirit now. Yes, you are restored to right relationship with God now. But when we're saved, we know that the salvation that Jesus has promised us, it's about more than that. It's not only about what God does for us right now, but what God is going to do for us in the future. What He has prepared for us when He will bring us into His presence to live and dwell with Him forever. But he says, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? If we were saved in this hope, that means we know we don't have it yet. We will have it in the future, but it's not ours just now. But then he says, verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We know it's coming, but we are waiting. Creation is waiting. Christians are waiting. And when that wait is over, what a glorious day that will be. Let's pray. Father, we are longing for this day to come. Longing for the day when Jesus will return. When our bodies will be raised and transformed. When we will be brought into your presence and when all things will be made new. God, as we suffer and face hardship and walk through the valley of the shadow of death in these days of our lives, we pray, God, that you would sustain us with this hope. God, help us to rejoice even when we have sorrow. God, help us to have joy even in the midst of hardship. Not because the things aren't really hard, but because we know that what's coming will cause all of these things to pale in comparison. God, you're so good and so gracious and so faithful. And we thank you for your grace in Jesus' good name. Amen.